I am honored to be able to teach from this text. It's a beautiful text. I feel um, humbled to be able to walk us through this text this morning. It's beautiful. So keep your Bibles open as we look at the suffering servant of this morning. In 1804, Thomas Jefferson took a pair of scissors to his New Testament and he cut out everything that had to do with miracles. He found that, or in his own mind, uh, he cut out everything that was incompatible with his rational thought. Only about 10% of the New Testament text survived his own editing, and may I say arrogant, process. We know that people have always had a problem with miracles in the Bible. <clears throat> and yet, maybe the most overlooked miracle in the whole Bible, Paul writes about in Romans chapter 4 verse 5, when he says, God justifies the ungodly. That God declares guilty people innocent. It's often, this message, it's why it's often called scandalous. As the theologian Thomas Kramer said, our problem is not just guilty feelings. Our real problem is objective, real, moral guilt before God. We are guilty. The book of Common Prayer puts it this way. The remembrance of our sins is grievous unto us. The burden of them is intolerable. We're all like Lady Macbeth in the Shakespearean play as she is trying to wash her hands of her part in murder. She says, out, damn spot, out, I say. Here's the smell of blood still. All the perfumes of Arabia will not sweeten this little hand. Her husband, seeing her absolutely lose her, losing her mind, says to a doctor, Can't thou not minister to a mind disease? Pluck from the memory a rooted sorrow, raise out the written troubles of the brain, and with some sweet, oblivious antidote, cleanse the bosom of that perilous stuff which weighs upon the heart? And the doctor replies, you may remember, therein the patient must minister to himself. Is that it? Is the answer... For guilt-bearing sin to medicate ourselves with something from within us? What makes our unbearable guilt, real guilt, go away? Who can bear it from us? Who can give us real relief? The fourth servant song this morning answers those questions clearly. For us. As Monty said, it's 
the most famous and most remarkable of the four servant songs. It's made up of five three-verse stanzas. It's directly quoted seven times in the New Testament in six individual passages, which I have put at the bottom of your notes. It has 34 verbal mentions or parallels in the New Testament. I want you to know this morning that Isaiah has been profoundly difficult to understand at first glance for Monty and I and for you. But as we've had to dig into it hard, it's come alive for us. Would you not agree? But this morning, the problem isn't understanding. This is a text that is easy to understand. But it is profound in its implications. It is straightforward, but it is also sobering. And ultimately, it's life-changing in what you and I treasure and where we find our pleasure. Dr. Alec Motier, an Isaiah scholar, writes this about this text. It's in your notes. How many eyes have been opened? When reading this passage from the Old Testament evangelist Isaiah, how many crusty Jewish hearts has this passage melted? It looks as if it had been written right beneath the cross of Golgotha, although it was written 750 years before Christ was crucified. Before crucifixion even was even a means of execution. It is the most central Deepest and loftiest thing that Old Testament prophecy has ever said. It is the crowning Old Testament text on how the Messiah would take our place to pay for our sins. Now as we consider this idea of a substitute for our sins, I think it would be helpful and maybe even wise to get an overview of the Old Testament perspective leading up to Leading up to Isaiah's fourth servant song, meaning what were people reading all along before Isaiah was written? To do that quickly, just write in your notes, Exodus chapter 12 speaks of the Passover. We have a substituting lamb that was slain in place of the firstborn child of that home. The blood of the lamb was sprinkled over the doorpost. And that blood of that lamb, in, in light of that blood of the lamb, the destroyer would pass over that home. It is a picture of atonement. Atonement is simply a big word for making a sacrifice for sin. And then we have Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. Leviticus 16, you can write that down. The ceremonies in Leviticus 16, were about the transfer of sin as the high priest laid his hand on the goat that belonged to the Lord and he killed the goat. He slayed it. The priest would kill the goat and this blood was sprinkled at the mercy seat for the sins of the people. But there was a second goat, if you may remember, and it was called a scapegoat which had the sins of the people ceremonially transferred to it. And this scapegoat would sent out in exile to the wilderness in a sign of averting God's wrath from the people. And then we have Psalm 51. And in Psalm 51, as David confesses his sins, we see, we see a little more clearer here <laughs> 
that the sacrifices and offerings in Exodus 12 and Leviticus 16 would not be affected for guilt bearing in the life of God's people. But it would be through repentance and faith from a broken and contrite heart. So with each of these, we see the gospel is getting clearer and clearer. And now, now we read Isaiah chapter 52, in the 52 and 53, we have this pinnacle and capstone of the gospel in the Old Testament text we see this morning. And there's five stanzas, as I said, and the first one tells us this. The sequence or pattern of the suffering servant. The sequence of the pattern of the suffering servant. This first stanza begins with the word behold. Behold, God wants us to see clearly what he is doing through this suffering servant. And it is a pattern or sequence of three things. Exaltation, humiliation, and again, exaltation. It is the sequence that as we know would be the Lord's life. That is his life. Exaltation, humiliation, and exaltation again with the resurrection. Verse 13 uses these three phrases. Shall be high. This servant shall be high. Lifted up and exalted. They all actually mean the same thing. They are synonyms with a multiplication effect to show us the magnitude of Jesus' exaltation. Verses 14 and 15 moves us from humiliation to exaltation and then back to, from exaltation to humiliation and then back to exaltation. It says this, as many looked upon Christ, they were astonished because he was so marred between human or beyond human resemblance. And in this, it is his extreme suffering that gives him to power to cleanse many nations. Here's what Isaiah is doing here. He is connecting this phrase, as many were astonished at his marred appearance, he's connecting that phrase to the other phrase that says, so shall he sprinkle many nations. He is saying that his suffering gave him the power in order to cleanse many nations. There is a connection there. We know the scripture says without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sin. Isaiah is speaking to that. His suffering gives him the power to cleanse many nations. This language is a language of a priestly function. If we think about in Leviticus 16 on that day of atonement, even the priests would sprinkle themselves. But Christ, we know, is both our priest and our sacrifice. He is both the priest and the lamb or the goat. He does not need to be cleansed though. In fact, the sprinkling of his blood is pure enough, one writer said, and powerful enough and lavish enough and effective enough to cleanse many nations. This is a new thing. The people who had read the Old Testament coming to Isaiah would have been in shock no goat, no lamb. I thought even those of us who know the gospel, we struggle to really grasp that God's 
suffering is powerful enough to relieve our guilt, our real guilt, to wipe it away. The gospel is saying something that is unheard of in the world of human misery. And with the power of this one's blood to cleanse the nations in his humiliation, the result will once again, once again be exaltation. The kings will shut their mouths, he says, on account of him. Because he is the king of kings. And he will become famous while they will die and become forgotten. The sequence or suffering of the servant. Secondly, Isaiah speaks of the spurning or the rejection of the suffering servant. We see that the first stanza ends with kings shutting their mouths on account of the servant. But when Isaiah asked this rhetorical, but then he asked these rhetorical questions. Who has believed? Verses 1, 53, 1. Who has believed our report? Who has believed our message? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The idea here is this general response to the servant's message has always been one of what? Rejection and resistance. The general response to the servant's message is rejection. Verse 2, though, gives us this clue for us. It says, he grew up right among them like a tender shoot or plant. This takes us back to Isaiah 11 when it said that the servant or the Messiah would be the root of Jesse. It speaks of his heritage in David, his Davidic heritage, that he would be the one. So even though he grew up right among them in the neighborhood, they knew him not. Who believed it? They didn't believe it. The text tells us because they were looking at the externals. The servant had no form of majesty or beauty or athleticism. He was not tall. He was not dark. He was not handsome. He didn't appear brilliant. He was unlike the other Israel kings. He was unlike Saul, the greatest known Israel king. Who was tall and dark and handsome and from the external perspective looked great. But we know his heart was about Saul. Not God, not the kingdom. It really shows us the hardness of Israel's hearts and our hearts. Because he had no stately appearance that we would be attracted to him. Verse 3 tells us we despised him. That he was forsaken of men. Tells us why he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. The very ones that he created rejected and despised him and they hid their faces from him. They did not esteem him. We know. If we know one thing about us. We have this powerful thing in us that looks at the externals, the surface of things. We judge by appearances. And Jesus did not even try to be impressive at that level. He did not try to be impressive on the externals. 
We are way more superficial than we ever realize. It is why we can grow up around Christ and fail to see his glory. We can have more passion and more energy and more love for and more be more outspoken for our sports teams, our hobbies, our work, our titles, our stuff, and everything else. And it just bubbles out of us. But we hide our faces from the very one who saved us. That's why Isaiah says this. It takes the arm of the Lord to awaken our hearts to see what a great treasure he is. The greatest treasure. And what a great pleasure he is. I know one thing about me and I know one thing about you. And that is all these twisted ways that we collectively together try to find our pleasure in life. Most of them good things that have been twisted and perverted in some way, form, or fashion. That desire for those pleasures can never be found unless they are replaced by another pleasure greater than those twisted ones. And that's what Isaiah is saying here. He's it, folks. You've been looking, you've been seeking, you've been tasting and trying everything this world promises. Isaiah says, you don't need to look any farther. Replace those pleasures with him, the greatest pleasure. And those things melt away. <clears throat> we would have rejected him too. Even if we have seen him with our own eyes, we would have turned away and rejected him to follow the cool folks depending on our ideology. And here's what the servant did. He embraced the rejection. He pushed through the rejection. He felt as a 100% man and a 100% God, he felt like we felt. He felt the pain of being rejected by the very ones that he created. That's why he was a man of sorrows. And instead of saying, I'm done with you, like we do, he pushes through that and he pays the price with his very life to give us our life back. <clears throat> John Piper says, we have nibbled so long at the table of the world. We are stuffed with small things and therefore there's no room for the great. We have rejected him because we filled our life with small things. The third thing Isaiah says about this suffering servants is of his significance. The third stanza is probably the most famous in all the fourth servant song. It is a statement about what the servant does very specifically, but it's also a statement and an indictment about us. And here's what it says about you and I. 
says we have griefs, we have sorrows, we have transgressions, we have iniquities, we deserve chastising, we are like lost idiotic sheep that go astray, we are bent in a way that we all turn to our own way. For they did what was right in their own eyes, that we are full of depraved iniquity. That's the indictments of us. But the remarkable thing is this servant who was exalted and who entered into willingly a state of humiliation to be rejected because we didn't think he was attractive enough. This one that we didn't esteem is the same one who comes alongside of us and he bears our griefs. He carries our sorrows. He is wounded and crushed and chastised for our sins. And God causes our sins to fall on him. And the result, <laughs> he gives us peace with God relationally that we were once enemies, but now because of Christ's death, we have become his friends. There is now peace with God. But he also gives us peace internally. Meaning, peace is found in a person. Isaiah, he writes this as if, as if we were at the cross. And he does so because we were. You may or may not have heard of Rembrandt's painting. I want to show it to you. It's called The Raising of the Cross. <clears throat> if you notice there, Rembrandt painted himself into the painting. He painted himself into the painting alongside of the other men who was crucifying Jesus. And he does that because he knows he would be screaming crucify him along with the crowd. Isaiah does the same thing this morning. He, he doesn't paint you and I into the picture of the crucifixion of Christ. But he does write it with his pen on paper. Isaiah is not only describing what Jesus did. He's also telling our part in the story. When we think about this transfer our sins to Christ, Christ's righteousness to us. There's a theological word called imputation. It means to charge to someone else's account. True guilt must be paid for. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the very righteousness of God. Positionally. And functionally. The significance of Christ's death on the cross screams to you and I. Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden. And I will give you rest. That blood that was pooling up in the puddles at the foot of the cross. Does not stay there and seep into the ground. It flows out toward us, guilty us, sinful us, hard-hearted us, sad us. 
And it takes from us, literally soaks up our real guilt, our real shame, our real loss because of our sins. And it gives us a whole new life. A life full of peace and healing. Fourthly, Isaiah says, this servant, he speaks of the submission of the suffering servant. 53 verses 7 through 9. Now by this time in the fourth stanza, we realize that the oppression and the affliction is not because of him. It is because the one who will make things, make kings, shut their mouths, submits to the Father's will, and shuts his own mouth. Not one word, this text tells us in 7 through 9, not one word of self-defense. Utter and absolute submission. He speaks of it, Isaiah, he says, like a lamb being led to slaughter. And lambs are dumb. You put a leash around their neck, you shoe them with a stick and a word, and they just follow the neck sheep's rear end to death. That's how Isaiah describes him. The one who is exalted and lifted high, the one who is going to sprinkle nations and cleanse them of their sins, the one who in his time of being oppressed and afflicted says nothing on his behalf, absolutely nothing. When I think of this, I think of how opposite he is of you and I. <laughs> it shows us something about Jesus that is so counterintuitive about our own nature. We're so good at it, and it's so natural for you and I to defend ourselves, is it not? It comes like blinking and breathing, involuntary. This past last few days, I was at a national AU basketball tournament. Uh, where Joel was playing. And the second game, they had no one to keep score. And they asked me would I keep score. And I tried to say no. You know, right down to the fouls and that little, just to make it okay. And I, I said, no, I'm a PE major. I can't do math. And they said, it's easy. Just two, two, one, three. I said, well, I can't count to three, right? But in the process, I'm watching Joel play as a dad. And my wife is sitting across, I told her, write down the scores to check me. At the end of the game, the ref came over and said, hey, can you count up? What's going on here with the score? And I had five points less than what the scoreboard said for the opposing team. Now, I'm the dad on the team, right? So I took, they took five points away. And the coach turns to me and said, really, dude? Really, you going to be like that? And immediately, I defended myself with a smart aleck comment. Flew out of my mouth. Not necessarily inappropriate, but it was a defense. I said, I said, man, don't accuse me of cheating. I would never cheat. Just flew out. Guess what? My wife let me know after the game I had it wrong. I was, I messed up. They still won, thank goodness. I thought how easy, when I was looking at this text, it flows out. Finger porn is one of our favorite devices for self-protection and self-justification. 
We blame shift. It's always someone else's fault. Parents blame their children. Children blame their parents. Husband blames their wives. Wives blame their husbands. Kids from a very early age, if your kids were like mine, I would say, hey, what are you doing? They were like, why are you looking at me? I didn't do anything. I didn't eat those cookies, even though their mouth is full of chocolate crumbs. Christians blaming Christians. A major source of tension. This is a major source of tension for all of us at home, at work, and at play. Yet the servant who is the purest in the purest right is submitting to his father and in his submission, he does not open his mouth. Verse 8 laments of how thoughtlessly he was dismissed and gotten rid of. Verse 9 says that in his actions and words, he was absolutely perfect. And it prophesizes what we know to be true, that he was hanged between, between two criminals and he was buried in a rich man's tomb, Joseph of Arimathea. Think about that. If you have doubts about your faith, be honest about them, but also think with your mind and heart, who could pin this? 750 years before it happened, Isaiah wrote, under the Holy Spirit's power of God, where the servant would be buried. The death of Jesus was a miscarriage of justice, no doubt. But in it, he willingly laid down his life. Peter writes of this in 1 Peter 2, 23. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. The last thing Isaiah tells us in this classic text is about the satisfaction of the suffering servant. Up until this point in the fourth servant song, we don't have one that is suffering with his people. We have one, think of this, that says, I will suffer for them. He is not going to exile uh, in the Babylonian captivity and entering into captivity with them to be with them in their suffering. He's doing something far greater. He's saying, I'm going to suffer in place of them as their substitute. And somehow takes upon all the suffering that was actually due to them and due to us. And this reeks of injustice. Anybody can see that. This glorious exalted servant who is perfect yet was rejected and despised by us, was dismantled physically, literally beaten to a pulp, that he can't even be recognized as human. In this injustice, the question here is where was God? If God is just, where is he in the midst of all this injustice? Verse 10, one of the most powerful and profound things we can see when it comes to the suffering of Christ 
and to suffering in general. This is what Isaiah says. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Where's God? Isaiah says without batting an eye. He says God is the one that is allowing his servant to suffer. We know at Easter, if you think about the History Channel, it always asks this question, who killed Jesus? Isaiah is saying here, it was not the Jews, it wasn't Judas, it's not Pilate, it's not the Roman soldiers, it's not the religious leaders. Though they all had a part to play under God's sovereign hand, he is saying it was the Father who killed the Son. This is a picture of Genesis chapter 22. Write that in your notes and read it. Abraham was told to take his firstborn son Isaac up to the mountain and kill him to show that he would trust God. In Hebrew, the writer of Hebrews tells us that Abraham believed God, even if he had killed his son, that God could raise him from the dead. But we know that story. We know God stopped it. God provided another sacrifice. He said no to Abraham when he saw his belief. But here, God is not sparing his own son. The Lord took delight to crush his own son. And the word crush there means a violent death. That the God of the universe was pleased to bring a violent death upon his own son. And verse 11 tells us why. It says, out of the anguish of his soul, the servant shall see and be satisfied. It's an astonishing statement. The suffering servant sees the anguish of his own soul. He sees his suffering death. He sees his suffering and being crushed. He sees his suffering and being cut off from the Father for the first time in all of history, all the time. And because God has prolonged his days, resurrection language, he sees it and he says he is satisfied. There's a great sense of satisfaction in the heart of the Son because of what he accomplished through his suffering. Now, what did he accomplish? Verse 11 tells us he will make many to be accounted righteous. That is what satisfies the suffering servant's soul. That his death will make many be accounted righteous. That his death would make you and I, in light of our depraved sinfulness, be accounted righteousness if we place our trust in his suffering shed blood. Again, the writer of Hebrews tells us this when he says, Who for the joy, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The suffering servant shields us from the wrath of God, and it purifies us. He purifies us so we can enter into the very presence of God as sons 
and daughters. This scandalous and let precious act of bloodshed by the servant was the divine strategy that led him to experience this victorious joy. Verse 12 says it's like a general <laughs> returning from a, a victorious defeat of an enemy army. And that he would get all the spoils. That's why the New Testament writers tell us, I think in the book of John, that Jesus will be lifted up and all men will be drawn to him. Christ is satisfied because he enjoys clearing sinners of their guilt and counting them righteous. Even today, all around the world, he is still finding great satisfaction in justifying the ungodly. The most overlooked miracle in the entire Bible. That's why John Owen says this. He says, the greatest sorrow and burden you can lay on the Father, the greatest unkindness is not to believe that he loves you. Look at what he did to his son for you. <clears throat> this gospel text in the Old Testament is powerful, is profound, and ultimately it's meant to change us, to melt our hearts, to make him an overarching thing of our life. And when he's not, not if, it is to point us back to him. That we would have this, this, this passion and, and just intense approach at I want to follow Christ. That make him my treasure, my pleasure over everything. Lifetime process, I get that. But this passage has implications for you and I. Take a minute and ask the question, so what? So what in light of what the suffering servant has done for those of you who don't know Christ? And I say to you this morning, if you've been around Christ, but he's not glorious to you, you've never placed your trust in him, this is an evangelistic text. It lifts Christ up and it says there's no other like him. Come to him today. His shed blood can be sprinkled on you and save you. Take a minute to ask that question. So what?